The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. It's Monday. We got a new week kicking off here of our off-season. Off-season week two. I wonder if I should try to track that. Is that a good idea or a bad idea to track how long the off-season actually is? I'm, I'm leaning towards a bad idea. But we're doing it for now. And this is week two. So I'm Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, if you'd like to give me a follow on Twitter. Although at this point, I'm thinking most of you guys listening to the show in the offseason are probably folks that were listening to the show during the season. And for that, I thank you very much. This is how we continue to have corporate sponsors of the podcast and how we can continue to do it for free every day forever. Or at least that's the plan. Quick recap on what happened over the weekend, and then we have our topic du jour, which I've been previewing for a few days now. Not that it's worth multiple days of previewing, but we started to talk about it on Thursday's show. And then on Friday, I really wanted to dedicate a show to a playoff preview. So for those that don't remember, way back, way back in the middle of last week, we started talking about the concept of ruthlessness And, of course, I had fun pretending to do a deep voice and goofing around a little bit. Ruthlessness. And the idea of when it's beneficial, long-term beneficial, for your team to drop an injured player. I think that really came into focus this year in a season that was shorter and faster than most other seasons. It became... Uh, an, an, an exacerbated topic, one that probably won't be as pressing next year, but one that I really want to make sure we get right going into next season, whatever that case may be. And we'll have to make our adjustments because one thing I want to remind you guys of before we even dive into this, as we were doing some kind of fuzzy math last week, it was it was approximations, we found that most basketball seasons most 82 game seasons teams play a shade over three games a week I think it was about 3.1 3.2 something in that neck of the woods and then this year it was much closer to three and a half because they squeezed the season by fewer days than they did games basically not that they you know it'd be it's not a one-to-one but as we just mentioned if a team is playing about 3.2 games a week you should be wiping out about two and change days for every game you eliminate. They didn't do that this year. Got rid of 10 10 games, but only shortened the season by, well, let's see. Normally it goes from middle of October or late October to mid or early April. And then this year it went from late December to mid-May. So I think they only shortened it by like two and a half weeks, but got rid of 10 games or something something crazy like that. So they, they didn't quite get rid of enough days to equal out the number of games missed. So it was a shorter, faster season. Therefore, someone who got a three-week timetable on an injury was likely to miss more like 
10 to 11 games instead of 9 or 10. And that adds up. It's just something I want us to keep in the back of our minds as we're doing calculations and then looking towards what I imagine next year will be a much closer to a normal length NBA season. It'll probably be 82 games, and it'll probably be that same kind of five months and a week or two weeks or whatever it normally is. So if somebody's out for six weeks, instead of missing 3.2 times six, they might miss, or next year, excuse me, flip that on its head. Instead of this year, where six weeks probably cost eh, somewhere in the neck of about 21-ish games, next year that might be more like 18 or 19. Just a game or two here and there. I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but it actually very much is as we work through the math on this thing. So we're going to go through the math on ruthlessness on today's show. I'm actually going to work through it with you guys. I picked a couple of names that I thought would be interesting. I don't actually know the results of the math we're going to do. We're going to do it on air together live, and that way we're going to learn together live. And if I'm surprised, I'll be surprised with you. And if I'm not, then we'll be like, all right, well, that was a half an hour well spent, and we'll chuck it into the waste bin and keep doing things the way we have been. But before we dive into that, a quick recap of the weekend games. Of course, we go all the way back to Friday when we had our last show. Memphis beat Golden State 117-112, and then Memphis went on and won their first playoff game over Utah on Sunday. So the Grizzlies steamrolling into the postseason. They won both of their play-in games, and they are up 1-0 on the number one seed Jazz in the Western Conference. What do I think is actually going to happen there? Well, it's one of those reasons that you often fade a big favorite in a first playoff game because all the pressure is on the favorite. Utah is not the same Jazz team they were in the first half of the season. I do, I do still think that they get this one ironed out. Memphis, uh, the turnover battle. Memphis won the turnover battle. Utah won the rebounding battle, won the blocks battle, won the free throw battle. Like All of the metrics pointed to Utah probably winning that game on Sunday night, but the Grizzlies just shot a tiny bit better, 45% to 42%. They had 19 extra field goal attempts. Now, some of that had to do with the free throw discrepancy, so if you wipe that out, it's more like about a dozen extra field goal attempts. But again, the metrics don't really make sense in that regard, given Utah out-rebounded the Grizzlies in the ballgame. So they, you would have thought, would have had more opportunities there. But the Jazz just couldn't make their three-pointers, at least not until partway through the ball game. Uh, a lot of the guys that they needed to have better performances didn't. And the Grizzlies were able to take advantage of it with some smart play and a really big ball game from Dylan Brooks in particular. The type of stuff that I don't think you can look at and say, oh, that's sustainable. And listen, we're kind of a... This is a podcast that generally defends Dylan Brooks as a basketball player because NBA Twitter likes to hammer him for his shot selection, and rightfully so. His shot selection is generally pretty piss poor, but he's also one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA, so he's going to be on the floor for them. If he improves his decision-making, which I don't know that he necessarily did in yesterday's game, but everybody's going to have a night where they get hot. So you just transpose yesterday's game over to any other day, And Memphis played one of their best games they could have played. Utah played one of their worst, and Memphis won by three. So the Jazz are probably going to win that series, but it's really nice to see Memphis come out there and and fight and knock them off their pedestal. And you got a whole bunch of underdogs. Well, I'd say underdog, it's not necessarily lower seeds. You got underdogs that are up 
uh, one game to nothing in these series. A couple of other thoughts from the uh, first game in a bunch of series. Washington Philly went roughly how we expected, although the Wizards had a particularly good shooting game, and I don't know that Philly's going to get away with that type of effort every night. They're going to have to clamp down a little bit. Philly taking all those extra free throws was largely the difference in the ballgame because the Wizards shot 56%, and that probably won't happen again. This is, again, why you like to take big underdogs in the first game of a playoff series because all the pressure is on the favorite. Underdogs come out. They know they're the dogs, so they come out hungry, nothing-to-lose type of mentality. They tend to play pretty good ballgames. In fact, as you look through the weekend... Memphis covered and won, actually, as a big underdog. Washington covered as a big underdog. Dallas won outright as a medium underdog. Miami covered as a medium underdog. The only big one that didn't cover was Boston, and they were up at halftime in their ballgame. But the Celtics just don't have the firepower. They don't. They're going to need Tatum to just go completely, absolutely crazy every ballgame for them to even have a chance. And he didn't come close in that game on Saturday. Uh, I think I had Brooklyn with a gentleman's sweep in that series, and that one I got wrong. I thought Boston would cover in that first game. When they were up at halftime, I thought, yep, see, there you go. Another underdog just finding a way to scrap their way into it. Uh, But they did not. Otherwise, I think our leans were relatively good in the weekend stuff. Miami-Milwaukee, I think I said I I was leaning towards the under because we knew Miami was going to pack the paint. It was also a day game, so that under would have hit. Uh, Clippers, Mavs, I like the Clippers still for the series. I think they get locked in and focus a little bit, but they looked bad in this one. I don't know if I had a lean in that ball game. Can't remember. I think I leaned towards the Clippers side, so that would have been a wrong one, I guess. Uh, Boston, Brooklyn thought that ball game would be closer, and it was for most of the way through. And then Portland, Denver, we definitely leaned Blazers in the game and the series. They're just a... They just have a massive firepower advantage. And Denver, to their credit, you know that's a team that's, that's never going to roll over. But they only got eight free throws in the whole ballgame. Jokic doesn't have anybody to pass it to anymore. And they just... I, I don't know how Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. can get past a healthy Blazers team. It's, it's a rarity when Portland actually comes into a playoff series healthy. So Dame was decent. Uh, he had a big line, but it took him a lot of shots to get there. Nurk was good. Against Jokic, Mello was excellent off the bench. McCollum was decent. Portland, really, I think Portland could play better. Not from a taking care of the ball standpoint. They only had six turnovers in the whole ballgame. In fact, the teams combined for only 14 turnovers and 27 free throws. That was one of the cleanest games ever. I'd be very surprised if it went that same way again. You'll see adjustments here for game two. Uh, Portland hitting 19 threes is something I'm sure Denver's going to be looking at. But they, I just don't know that the Nuggets have the personnel with all the injuries they've dealt with to, to piece this thing together. Nuggets shot 51% of the ballgame as well. What do they do if, if Jokic or Michael Porter Jr. is not outstanding for a night? You turn to Aaron Gordon? I doubt it. So I still like Portland for the series. In terms of the game coming up this evening, because this is one of the ones that's got a a game two tonight, Portland is in one and a half point underdog. I think there's an expectation that Denver gets one of their two home games. I don't know that that's true. Dame is is a mean son of a gun in the playoffs, and it took 
Well, the Lakers kind of figured out how to play him. They just had the right personnel, which basically is Anthony Davis is the right personnel to deal with what Portland likes to do. Denver doesn't have that guy. Denver can't guard him at all. I don't know. I think Portland could actually just take both of them in Denver. This could end up being a much more lopsided series than we expected. I don't want to read too much into game one, but Denver actually played relatively well offensively and weren't really all that close in that ballgame. They'll get some more free throws here in game two, I would imagine. You see that type of stuff, the lobbying, things of that nature. Total of 226.5 in that ballgame. Uh, I actually lean towards the under. That last game ended at 232. And other than the free throw stuff, uh, this is one where pretty much everything went right for offenses. Portland, from a pace standpoint, probably should have finished this game at about 106-107. But they made 18 of their 19 free throws, only had six turnovers, and hit 19 three-pointers. I don't know that Portland's going to be that efficient here in a, a, a second ball game in a row. Even if they hit their shots and hit their threes and hit their free throws, because they're a good free throw shooting team, they're not going to have six turnovers again. That number's going to be higher. And on the Denver side, the eight turnovers will probably be higher. They shot 51% from the field. So again, even if the free throws do come up for Denver, I don't know that it changes things that dramatically. They actually also overmarked their pace pace of this ball game actually had the final total in about the 211 range so it went over by uh, over 20 points that's a big big leap so i actually like the under in portland denver i think that there's a very real chance that there there is continued offensive efficiency but I don't think it's going to be as significant as what you saw in game one. I don't think Portland can be quite as great. And so let's say they slip a little bit. They don't hit 19 three-pointers. Maybe they miss two or three free throws instead of one. And the turnovers go up from six to, I don't know, 10. That's enough to wipe out four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10 points off of Portland's total. And then that way, even if Denver comes up a little bit, you're still talking about really working hard to get over that mark in a playoff game. It's going to get slower as Denver Denver knows they need this thing in the half court because that's where Jokic is most efficient. Easy buckets are, I mean, Portland, they, I think Portland, will, they're almost fine with whatever pace this game goes. They probably want more because they have all those offensive weapons. So if you're Denver, you probably try to slow this thing down a little bit, make them beat you in the half court where the Nuggets are excellent and have been as long, well, they will be as long as they have Jokic, so I like the under in that ballgame. The other one today is Miami-Milwaukee, and the Bucks won that first one in overtime, total that ended at 216, and this one's kind of interestingly because, it, to me it's interesting because it's the other side of the coin. Milwaukee and Miami almost couldn't have been any worse offensively in that game on Saturday morning. The first real playoff game, first thing in the morning, was that a was that a 1 p.m. start central time in Milwaukee? I think I'm getting that right. It was before noon out here on the Pacific Coast. Uh who was good for the Bucks in that game? Brooke Lopez? Is that about it? Drew Holiday was uh I guess Drew Holiday was pretty solid, but he missed his free throws and had five turnovers. Teams combined for 34 turnovers. Admittedly, this was an overtime game, so that number is not that ridiculous, but it's pretty high. Uh, the Bucks shot 33 free throws, uh, but missed almost half of them. They were extremely inefficient at the free throw line. Giannis had another terrible shooting game against Miami. But you know what? To Mike Budenholzer's credit, 
Coach Bud, Giannis played 45 and a half minutes. About damn time. About damn time, dude, was going to play more than 40 during regulation. About damn time. Middleton, 45. Drew, 42. He was saving these guys last year. And I, I really, again, I go back to that. I don't think these, those dudes wanted to be in the bubble last season. And Coach Bud was like, look, we're not going to overextend ourselves here. And maybe that's why everybody stuck around. Maybe that's why Giannis signed his extension early. We keep talking about how Coach Bud didn't want to play his guys a ton of minutes. Maybe there's more going on there. In any case, Giannis was bad. The Heat, so we have to analyze this from a couple standpoints. You could say that regression will kick in, but the Heat are among the two best teams in the league at defending Giannis. Still 37% on 27 shots and 6 of 13 at the free throw line. He'll be better than that. He'll be better than that. Bucks only hit five three-pointers. That's one of their worst outputs from downtown on the season. They'll just be better. And from a pace standpoint, and we'll, we'll analyze this from an overtime perspective, the Bucks should have been around 130 points, 129, 130 points. So they underachieved their expected output based on being kind of an average offensive team, and they're probably a little bit better than that, by about 30, excuse me, 20. By about 20 points, they underperformed. And Miami is just as guilty. Jimmy Butler shot 18% in the ballgame. Bam Adebayo, 27%. If they hadn't gotten 12 three-pointers from Duncan Robinson and Goran Dragic, Miami would have gotten steamrolled in this ballgame because they got nothing from their superstars. So a lot of folks might be looking at the side in Game 2 and saying, well, Giannis should bounce back. I'll take the Bucks," Or Jimmy Butler should bounce back. I'll take the Heat. I'm actually looking at the total as a possible over. This game had 216 points in overtime. It wasn't anywhere near the actual mark. But you can look at a lot of factors and say, look, even if these teams defend each other well, this was still a gross underperformance by the two teams. Miami should have been about 125, 126 points also. So they underperformed an overtime game by almost 40. 216 should have been more like 256. And I still think it's possible they underperformed the expected pace because of how well these two teams know one another. But 226 and a half would have been eminently achievable given the pace of game one. I know, it's weird. I'm looking at the game that went under and saying it'll go over the next time around, and I'm looking at the game that went over and it's saying it'll go under, and they're both basically sitting on the same final number. But there's a very different feel about it. Milwaukee wants to push the pace in their home games. Denver doesn't. And home teams often dictate the tempo of a playoff basketball game, at least more so than road teams do. I think the one road team... There's probably more than one. Uh... Lakers are a road team that I think tends to dictate tempo a little bit, at least when they're focused. But Portland's not. I think they're pretty much content to do whatever because they've got the firepower. So in terms of the games today, I like the... Uh, which order are they going in? Bucks game is first, right? I like the early game over because they adjusted that total way down to 222.5. So now we're getting some room here. Uh, and I like the second game under which, interestingly enough, they didn't move that total all that much. I think it's up by about a half point. First game was 226. This one's 226 and a half. 
All right, let's dive into some of the ruthlessness stuff here. That's where I'm sitting on uh, playoffs. I didn't talk Lakers-Suns at all, but uh, we'll get into that one when they play their next ballgame tomorrow. Uh, I'm generally concerned about the health of some of the Lakers superstars, particularly Anthony Davis, who doesn't at all look like himself. But again, we'll talk about that on tomorrow's podcast. I want to talk about the, the concept of ruthlessness from a mathematical standpoint, because on Thursday of last week, we went through it a bit more anecdotally, which is a word that I said a few times, and I'm sure you guys were like, stop saying that damn word. But you know what? It's fun, so I kept doing it. And stories can tell us whatever we want them to. That's both the, that's the double-edged sword. It's the beauty and the, the grotesque hideousness of using stories to create an answer you want. It's very easy. I had a team this year, we've talked about before, in a head-to-head league where I sat on three or four guys that I definitely shouldn't have. So that story tells me I should have been far more ruthless. But I had a head-to-head team two years ago. Oh, which, no... Yeah, I think it was two years ago. Jonas Valanciunas, was it the year he was traded to Memphis and then he got hurt? Or was that the following year? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what year it was. Uh, JV missed like six weeks with, I think it was an ankle, might have been a thumb. And he got dropped. And I went a stashing in a head-to-head league. So I picked up a guy that I thought would be relatively useful for me down the stretch, and had I not picked him up, I probably wouldn't have won the league that year. That year, I was basically punting rebounds and field goal percent. For most of the season, I picked up JV, and he made me competitive, and I happened to run into a team in the finals that wasn't very good at field goal percent either. So it was like two field goal per- percent punt teams going against each other, and I happened to pick up a stash guy. So... That anecdote would suggest that you do sit on injured guys if they're going to be useful. What we need to figure out today is where the numerical cutoffs lie. When is a guy actually statistically useful to sit on for the duration of their injury? So stashes might not be the best example because sometimes you can get a guy a week or two into a stash. But for this purpose, let's just assume if you're stashing someone you're stashing them the second they get hurt. So that year, whatever season it was, and I'll, I'll pull it up while we're talking about it because it's actually going to be somewhat relevant to the discussion. Um, what year did JV miss like 15, 20 games? It was uh, two years ago. I was right. Okay, it was the 18-19 season. He played 30 games in Toronto. He played 19 for Memphis, and he missed like 20 in the middle of that season. Let's pull the actual timeline up from that one, just so we can really figure this out. Uh, JV didn't play between December 12th and February 12th. So it's exactly two months, which under a normal 82-game season at the normal expected pace is a little over eight weeks of basketball. Uh, So you're talking about about 25-ish. Somewhere between 25 and 30 games. Missed. Could you make the case... Let's start with JV two years ago. Because, again, I picked him up, and it won me a league. But process has to be important over results. Was JV an actual value that season? The answer is, he was not. He played 49 games 
out of a possible 82. And by totals, JV was number 154. So he won me a league, but technically, process-wise, I probably shouldn't have stashed him. The fit had to be perfect. It was. I happened to have a team that was largely healthy for the six or whatever weeks that I had him on my team during the eight weeks that he had missed. So he got dropped like a week into his injury, and I picked him up maybe a week later. And I said, all right, I'm going to just sit this one out. He took a long time to get back. We thought he was going to be back in six that year, if I recall, and it took him eight. So I sat on that dude a long time, and ultimately it worked. But by all accounts, I would have been much better served just playing anyone there and not taking the zeros and probably making a push in that head-to-head league for, say, a top two seed and a bye. So JV that year, number 154. By totals, by averages that year, he's number 75. Now, it's worth noting that his time in Memphis, he was a top 40 guy. For the 30 games in Toronto, he was like top 100. And the 20 games in Memphis, roughly, he was top 40. So there are some other weird little factors that go into this thing. And so when you analyze someone like a JV there, I don't know, we're, we're taking a little bit of a detour, but I think it's important to understand every element of this. He is, it's like we're analyzing a top 40 guy who missed 33 ball games on the year. Who is that guy? Uh, well, we can go back to this season if we want to and find someone in the top 40 range who played about 49 games. That guy this year is Jamal Murray, who was number 31 and played 48 games. Or we could go a little farther down the board and say OG Ananobi, who was number 37 and played 43 games. So where did those guys fall on this year? Jamal Murray was number 78 this year. 48 games at a top, well, he was, what did I say, 31? So that is a little bit better than top 40. OG Ananobi, 43 games in the 40 range, was number 110. If you give him another... Well, this year, okay, so that's, uh, we can't do it with this year. So, yeah, you have to go percentages. Sorry, guys. Throw out what I was talking about because this year, uh, 40-some-odd games, you're only missing 20-some-odd, and it's it's a different percentage. So it's got to be about percentage missed. Uh, JV played 49 out of 82 games two years ago. That's a percentage. He played about 60% of their games, so you do that on a 72-game season. That would be somebody playing 43 games this year. So, okay, so OG Ananobi actually made perfect sense. So that changes the results of our JV discussion a little bit because he wasn't the Toronto Jonas Valanciunas. He was now the Memphis Jonas Valanciunas, which corresponds quite well to OG Ananobi this year, who was right around number 40 and played in exactly 60% of his team's games, and that put him at number 110, which is, by all accounts, right on the borderline. That's basically a 10th round pick, which it should be your last starter. So if someone's going to miss 60% of their games and they're a top 40 player, that puts them right on coin flip. No real definitive solution to that particular question. I told you we're learning this stuff on air together today. So there's no... there. If someone had gone into the season and told you OG Ananobi was going to miss 40% of his games... You couldn't actually have said, well, I should just not, I should just drop him. 
the first at the first sign of him being hurt. And it's also not really fair because OG didn't miss all of his games in one eight-week chunk where you could have just gotten rid of a guy and not gotten zeros, so that also clouds things a little bit. But just from a numerical standpoint, if OG Ananobi had lumped all of his missed games into one packet, one, I don't whatever, however many stinking weeks he ended up missing this, this year, one 40%, we're just going to go by percentage instead of total time missed, one 40% season chunk, that would have been right on the borderline, and you would have actually been right no matter what you did, right or wrong. The right call with OG this year would have probably been to drop. Because someone that's there and then not there and then there and then not here, that's killing you in head-to-head. Because you just, you, you can't, you can never feel confident throwing him in there for a week because he's probably just going to miss a game or two. We talked a little bit, anecdotally, about Kemba Walker this year as another interesting test case of how many games someone can miss while putting up pretty decent per-game numbers. Kemba was number 63, but he played in only 45 out of 72 games this year, which is a 63, a 62.5% clip. And what we figured out in a very quick look on our Thursday show was that that wasn't good enough. It's funny, he's actually number 118. He's about a little bit under a round behind where we just put OG Ananobi. So Kemba Walker, who is another case of a guy missing a good chunk up front, but then also sitting out all of the back-to-backs. I think that with that particular instance, that probably puts him more towards the drop category because, again, headache, more trouble than they're worth. By the way, we're not talking about Roto here. Roto, you get all of those numbers plus what we talked about on Thursday, which is you add another 20-some-odd Dante DiVincenzos to your final game total for this particular roster slot. This is about head-to-head. So Kemba Walker, just like OG Ananobi, probably belonged on the outside of your team based on the number of games missed. Again, very difficult to handicap it because not all of his games were missed up front. But I do think, and this is also something we mentioned on Thursday's show, one of the factors you have to add in here is even if these guys don't take the full breath of the expected time out, They probably will. Most of these guys, when you get a timetable, and Kemba, we didn't really have one. They said he wasn't, quote, all that close, but he was back within about a month of the season starting. And if he only missed those four weeks, he would have been a great value. Guy drafted near 100, top 60 type stuff on a per-game basis. Delightful. Four, Four weeks missed, 12, 13, 14 games, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Absolutely, he would have crushed But he also sat out every single back-to-back, and then there were little bumps and bruises that cost him additional games. So you miss the initial 14. That takes you down to 72, then the 58 range, and then you miss another 10 to 12 on back-to-backs, and that takes you in the high 40s, and then you miss one or two more games just because you're dinged up a little bit in a best-case scenario. And now you're looking at a guy who's effectively missing two months. More or less. Eight weeks, about, uh, well, this year, forget which year you're talking about, but effectively missing two months. Mid to high 20s in games missed. Oof. 
That's rough. And then with JV, we were talking about, he, I guess he ended up more like nine or ten weeks out when all was said and done that uh, that year because, because of trade stuff and other games where he just didn't play. So the one additional note on this that we were just talking about, which is guys aren't going to play every game when they come back from a long absence, I think also tips anyone who's near the cut line to the cut side of the cut line because there was never a chance... Like, Kemba Walker coming back in about a month this year was probably a best-case scenario, but then you had to just build in another 15 games missed due to staggered rest days. Just build them in, however many back-to-backs are left the rest of the way. Who didn't? I think KD, what? Didn't he play in, like, one back-to-back at the very end of the season just to get him tuned up for the playoffs? So numerically... As we're looking through some of this stuff, numerically, most of these situations are drops when a guy's going to be out for an extended stretch. You have to work yourself pretty far up the board to where a guy missing a real significant chunk of games becomes a hold. I mean, we're talking about guys that are inside the top 30. And I thought that cutoff would be a little bit farther down. You know, uh, like 40 range. Jamal Murray, who we were just talking about, 31, missed 24 games. He was on the right side. C.J. McCollum, number 30, missed 24 games. He was on the right side of it. Kristaps Porzingis, he was number 27, missed 28 games this year. And he was ever so slightly on the right side of the cut line, believe it or not. Missing, sheesh, 28 games. I think that's exactly 40% of the year this season, isn't it? No, it's just ever so slightly less than that, 39%. So you got to be, whatever 39% is, uh, 39%, what did I say? He missed 28 games, so 28 divided by about 3.4 this year. So he missed about eight weeks, all told, Porzingis. And that, I think, is the number that we're staring at here. Let's turn all of this data that we're collecting on these guys into a strategy. That's the hardest part, is to take the data, turn it into a strategy. Well, I think for anything under four weeks absence, if someone's expected to miss about a month, you pretty much hold on to them. Certainly if they're inside the top 75. Because that's not that much. Um... Darren Fox is actually a really good example of that. He ended up missing the equivalent of about a month's worth of games this year. He was inside the top 70, and missing a month of games actually only dropped him by about a half round. So it's just not that big of a deal. A month, you deal with it inside the top 75. If you're in that 90 range, someone missing a month, screw it. I say get rid of them, even though they probably hang on as we just talked about this year, the average number of games missed for an NBA player was only a little bit less than that. Like three weeks was pretty close to the average. But like, let's look at someone in the 80s. Harrison Barnes is number 82 on a per-game basis. He missed almost exactly a month when you talk about number of games missed, and he falls like four or five slots. That's it. So it didn't change that much this year for guys to miss four weeks of games. Still, if someone had told me Harrison Barnes was going to be out for four weeks 
He's number 82. I'd have, a, I'd have a real decision on my hands. I really think anybody outside of the top 90, if they're going to miss four weeks or more, you move on in head-to-head. It's just too many zeros. By the way, I should also mention again that this discussion is about is not about the guy you throw in your, in your IL slot. If you have one IL slot, throw him in there. If you have two, throw him in there. We're talking about when you've hit your critical mass and any additional injuries to your team means you're taking zeros from that slot. I guess there's another discussion on which guy you drop. Is it the one that's going to be out the longest or is it going to be the one uh, that has the least value when they're actually playing? That could be a discussion for another day. Hell, let's make that tomorrow's discussion. All right, tomorrow is going to be comparing injured players. Awesome. Great. Wasn't sure where we were going to go tomorrow. Now I know. Fun, fun, fun. Six weeks, you start to work your way down the board a little bit, and now you're talking about 20 games out. Mike Conley uh, is a good example of someone who ended up missing about 20, about six weeks of games. He was number 56 on a per-game basis, and he dropped to number 80 by totals. So he fell about a round, a little over a round, round, round and a half, somewhere in that neck of the woods. So if someone's going to be six weeks, and they're going to fall a round, round and a half, I think your cutoff now becomes top 75. I'm trying to look at who... Uh... Is there anyone in that neck of the woods we can actually use this comparison on? Jeremy Grant was number 77. He played 54 games. Lamella Ball was 78. He played 52. So those are your two guys that you're looking at there. Jeremy Grant was number 94. Lamella Ball was 107. And I know it, it's, it's a hard thing to, to palate. But in a head-to-head league, Lamella Ball should have been dropped on his injury news. As exciting as he was, he should have been dropped. And not just because it seemed like he might run right into the fantasy playoffs. He should have been dropped because, statistically, taking zeros from that slot was going to hurt you more than holding on to him for his full season production. And all of this stuff comes with caveats. All of this stuff comes with caveats, meaning... If your team can weather it, if you're way out in first place, stuff like that, yeah, I mean, fine. You know, take a couple of L's. But in from a strict mathematical standpoint, at six weeks of injury, top 75 is your cutoff. And finally, eight weeks. At eight weeks of injury, what is your cutoff? Because that puts us now somewhere in the neck of the... Uh, Let's see, if, if 4 was about 14, and I called 6 about 20, then I guess we have to call 8 weeks about 26-ish games played. So that would have been 46 games this year. <sighs> and I know the percentages don't fully match up to an 8-week season, so we'll have to do some adjusting for next year. But Kyle Lowry is actually a pretty good example of this. Same with his teammate, Pascal Siakam. Nope, excuse me, Pascal... Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich is another example of this in Atlanta. Gordon Hayward in Charlotte. These guys are right around the top 50 range. And they played, uh, they missed about 26 ball games, which, again, this year you have to be a little bit more ruthless than usual. So uh, 
say 24 games missed what do we want to do 26 games missed so that's 46 out of 72 so that's 64 percent of the season that on an 82 game season is 52 so that's more like 30 games missed so we'll make that adjustment for next year but as you flip those guys from per game to totals gordon hayward falls outside the top 100 kyle lowry falls just outside the top 100 just barely this is your cutoff effectively top 50 on an eight-week absence is kind of your cutoff. The guys above that, you hang in there. LeBron, actually a pretty good example of someone in, inside the top 40 who missed about the equivalent of eight weeks of basketball this year. Yeah, you hold. McCollum, Jamal Murray, well, Jamal Murray you wouldn't hold because he was out for the season, but you get my meaning. If he was going to be back at the end of that number of games missed, he was a hold. And then anybody above that, anyone inside like the top 20-ish, you just hold. You have to. Because no one out there is going to get you that kind of production on a per-game basis. Uh, What I want to do on tomorrow's show, and I didn't even have time to do promos today. Oh, well, we'll do them tomorrow. we get bonus promos tomorrow. Uh, What I want to do on tomorrow's show is talk a little bit more about comparing injured players and also translating the data we found today to next year when it's back to an 82-game season. It becomes less about... And again, it's more about finding that percentage gap. So what is the four, six, and eight-week threshold in an 82-game season? Because we did just kind of tell you what they were in a 72-game season, um, and it's a little bit more lenient with more games to work with. So we'll move that bar down a little bit, and uh, that'll be our Tuesday show. Enjoy the games tonight. Uh, Probably have at least one of those two things maybe in the wager pass. You guys might have gotten a sneak preview. I am Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Have a wonderful Monday, everybody. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.